throughout church history, godly men and women have written books to help Christians endure hard times. Uh, one of my favorites is by Jerry Bridges. It's called Trusting God Even When Life Hurts. Uh, after recounting personal losses of his own, he asked the question uh, we all ask when facing the painful fallenness of this world, where is God in all of this? Uh, he says, we see the news, instances of grief, heartache, and pain on a massive scale. There is war, terrorism, earthquakes, famine, racial injustice, murder, and exploitation occurring daily in various parts of the world. The threat of a nuclear holocaust hangs over our heads. In such days, when massive crises appear, almost daily, even the Christian is tempted to ask, where is God? Of course, Bridges doesn't stop there. He goes on to explain why we can trust God in hard times. One reason he gives is that God is perfect in love. Another is that God is infinite in wisdom. But a large portion of his book is spent on a third reason. God is completely sovereign. Page after page, Bridges points suffering people to God's sovereignty over circumstances, God's sovereignty over people, and God's sovereignty over nations. And he shows how God's sovereign control enables us to trust Him through hard times. Long before Jerry Bridges wrote that book, God wrote a book for Christians facing hard times. It's a book of Revelation. Revelation comes to a church facing great tribulation. A tribulation that includes persecution, satanic revolt, political oppression, economic hardship. And so, so the question that this church asks, you know, what's going to keep us trusting God through these hard times? What is going to keep you trusting God through hard times? In Revelation, a big answer to that question is the sovereign rule of Jesus Christ. Nearly every page of this prophecy develops the sovereign rule of Jesus. And chapter 6 is no exception. Hard times are in Jesus' hands. And we'll see this and also much more in verses 1 through 8. Let's read them together, starting in verse 1. Now I watched when the Lamb opened one of the seven seals, and I heard one of the four living creatures say with a voice like thunder, Come. And I looked, and behold, a white horse, and its rider had a bow, and a crown was given to him, and he came out conquering and to conquer. When he opened the second seal, I heard the second living creature say, Come. And out came another horse, bright red. Its rider was permitted to take peace from the earth so that people should 
slay one another, and he was given a great sword. And when he opened the third seal, I heard the third living creature say, Come, and I looked, and behold, a black horse, and its rider had a pair of scales in his hand. And I heard what seemed to be a voice in the midst of the four living creatures saying, A quart of wheat for a denarius, and three quarts of barley for a denarius, and do not harm the oil and wine. When he opened the fourth seal, I heard the voice of the fourth living creature say, Come. And I looked, and behold, a pale horse, and its rider's name was Death. And Hades followed him. And they were given authority over a fourth of the earth to kill with sword and with famine and with pestilence and by wild beasts of the earth. We start the seven seals this morning. The seven seals paint a a sweeping picture that goes something like this. Amid a world facing God's judgment... Christians lay down their lives to spread the gospel until Jesus returns. Amid a world facing God's judgments, that's the four horses we'll we'll talk about today. Christians lay down their lives to spread the gospel, that's the martyrs, until Jesus returns, that's the last. Today I'm going to limit our focus to the first four seals... ...that describe some of God's judgments. But in doing so, I'd like to do this by answering four questions. And the first is this. Who opens the seven seals? Who opens the seven seals? In chapter 5, verse 1, we learned of a scroll that was in God's right hand. And the scroll contains... Uh, God's plan to bring history to its climax in the new heavens and the new earth. But we also encountered a serious dilemma, didn't we? There was, there was nobody worthy to open the scroll, and it's and it sealed up. And if it's, as long as it's sealed, God's, it's, it's like God's purposes aren't going to be enacted. They're not going to come to pass. And if no one's worthy to open it, then what? So no one was worthy to to make God's promises come true, we saw. Except one. Except one. The Lamb, Jesus Christ. He is worthy. In verse 9, all of heaven says, Worthy are you to take the scroll and to open its seals. For you were slain. And by your blood you ransomed people for God from every tribe and language and people and nation. And you have made them a kingdom and priests to our God, and they shall reign on the earth. So as the Lamb, Jesus has conquered through the cross, and now as as the risen and exalted King with all authority, He takes the scroll and He breaks the seals one by one. And so our answer to the first question is a simple one, one that children often repeat in Sunday school, Jesus But within John's vision, Jesus is the Lamb who is sovereign. He is the Lamb who is sovereign. Remember that the Lamb took the scroll. 
from the right hand of God. And so this is a picture of Jesus holding history in his hands. Notice too that the Lamb opens each seal. So he is the one determining what happens in history and when it happens. And soon we'll discover some awful calamities associated with each seal, yet by opening them, Jesus reveals that even awful calamities do not transpire without his authorization. Also notice the passive verbs here in verse 2. It was given to him. Uh, Verse 4. Its writer was permitted to take peace. Verse 8. Death and Hades were given authority. Throughout Revelation, you will find this kind of language emphasizing that evil is always under the Lamb's control. Nothing happens without His sovereign say-so. The Lamb is always on His throne. All history, even with its hard times and evil empires and satanic revolts, all of it rests in Jesus' hands. The Lamb is sovereign. That's who opens the seven seals, to complete God's purpose in salvation and judgment. Second question, what do these horsemen represent? What do these horsemen represent? Uh, You can do a Google search and you come up with all kinds of funny answers. You know, things like Google, Facebook, Amazon, and Apple. You know, know, you you find uh, some... Wrestle re, uh, people from the WWF back in the 80s and uh, uh, some running back, quarterback, tight end, and fullback from Notre Dame. And it's just uh, a list. Just look up uh, the four horsemen of the apocalypse in pop culture, and Wikipedia just has hundreds of, of, of things listed. Thankfully, Revelation isn't the first place we find horsemen in a vision like John's. They also appear in Zechariah chapter 1 and Zechariah chapter 6. In the ancient world, horsemen stood for military domination. Okay, they were the superior war machine. But when Zechariah gets his vision, the Lord reveals to Zechariah that the Lord has a few horsemen of his own. In Zechariah chapter 1, verse 8, the prophet sees a man riding a red horse. And he stands with some others riding other horses, red and sorrel and and white horses. And the Lord has commissioned these horsemen as scouts. He sends them out and they ride to evaluate the state of the nations. And they find that the nations are at rest. But it's not a good kind of rest. Okay, it, it, the nations are at rest in their rebellion. They're at rest, kind of living it up while God's people are oppressed. Well, at the end of Zechariah's night visions, in chapter 6 of Zechariah, verses 1 to 8, these same horses appear. Again, we're told of red and black and white and dappled horses. Only this time, the horses are pulling chariots. And so the Lord, this time, is not sending them out as scouts. He is sending them out to war. 
If, we, uh, if you're reading the New American Standard Version in Zechariah chapter 6, verse 5, he calls them the four spirits of heaven. And so these are God's heavenly agents. He sends these spirits, or horsemen, to execute judgments on a world that's at ease in its rebellion. And that's what they are in Revelation as well. They are agents of God's judgment. Like Zechariah's vision, the horses in John's vision also go out for judgment against a world at ease in its rebellion. Now the first horse we see is a white one. In Revelation, white can signify purity, but it can also signify victory. Okay, such as when uh, God clothes the martyrs in white, uh, or when Jesus appears on a white horse in Revelation 19. This horse rides to conquer, to get victory. Uh, and that has led some to believe that the first horse represents Jesus. I don't think so. Uh, again, if Zechariah is our backdrop here to this, to this imagery, these horses function as one group. Okay? They, they are agents of Jesus. They are commissioned by Jesus. Also, the bow that he carries is like the armies described in Jeremiah 50, verse 42... Uh, in a prophecy, this is against Babylon, uh, the Lord intends to stir up a people from the farthest parts of the earth. It says, they lay hold of bow and spear. They are cruel and have no mercy. They ride on horses. And the king of Babylon uh, heard the report of these horsemen and his hands fell helpless and anguish seized him. All right. In Revelation, John compares the rebellious world to Babylon. Babylon becomes a type. And it's pointing to, to, to this, uh, great, this greater worldwide rebellion. And the point is that regardless of how strong and stable a society may view itself, God is able to raise up another to conquer you. In fact, that's why this horse rides. He represents God's judgment in raising up one world power to conquer another world power. Uh, historically speaking, I don't think it's an accident that one of Rome's greatest threats was the Parthians, also known for their mounted bowmen. Uh, Craig Coaster observes, instead of commemorating the Roman conquests that produced the relative uh, the, the, the relatively stable social settings in which they lived, the vision raises the specter of conquest that could threaten the prevailing order. This first writer challenges the perception of invincibility that was, that was integral to imperial Roman propaganda. So we're going to return to that a little bit later. Let's, let's now move to the second seal. John sees a red horse. Red, uh, st uh, obviously standing here for, for the bloodshed uh, caused by his judgments. He's also given a sword. He rides out for war. Uh, but notice how the war transpires. Verse 4, its rider was permitted to take peace from the earth so that people should slay one another. 
Now, John wrote these words during a time called the Pax Romana, the Peace of Rome. Comparatively speaking, Roman society was relatively calm. On the ground, it appeared that things were running smoothly. Perhaps we could say the same for ourselves in America, right? Comparatively speaking, we're living in a time more peaceful than others. Perhaps humanity progresses after all, some might say. But this writer exposes that all God has to do is remove his peace from a society and humans will slaughter one another. All he has to do is remove his hand of restraint and humanity will devour itself. People will slay one another. I don't think he's including Christians in the group slaying one another. According to verse 9, they're among those that are getting slain for their testimony. This judgment falls on the rebellious world in general. God removes peace and in their depravity, people butcher one another. In other words, war itself is a judgment from God. ...when he gives humanity over to its passions. The living creatures call yet another horse in verse 5. A black one this time. Uh, and if you, you can think uh, throughout scripture... ...that black is often the, the color for, for mourning. People putting on sackcloth and ashes. Uh, mourning and sorrow is the idea here... And, and sorrow makes sense as this third agent of God's judgment brings famine. Its writer, it says, had a pair of scales in his hand. I heard what seemed to be a voice in the midst of the four living creatures saying, a quart of wheat for a denarius and three quarts of barley for a denarius and don't harm the oil and wine. So the writer holds scales to signify, you know, they've got to weigh out the food. ...in the midst of, a, of an economic catastrophe is, is the idea. It's comparable to the curses, if you want to look these up later... ...in Leviticus 26, 26 uh, and Ezekiel 4, 10. You find this same uh, uh, imagery. Uh, but the idea is that food must be rationed out and weighed. Uh, there's high demand, but not enough to go around... A quart of wheat was enough for one person to eat for a day. Uh, three quarts of barley was enough for a small family day by day. A denarius was one day's wages. In other words, you're spending your whole paycheck just to eat. You have nothing left to pay for housing, clothing, protection, leisure, or anything else. Everything is going just to survive. On top of that, he says, don't harm the oil and wine. Now, some see this as God kind of limiting how far the disaster is going to run its, run its course, uh, meaning the oil and the wine are, are going to remain fine. They were, you know, bread, oil, and wine were among the, the main staples, so that they're going to be okay. Uh, it could also mean don't harm the oil and wine in the sense that there's barely enough to go around. Uh, another reading is that people need more bread. That's the demand. But those in power keep making oil and wine instead. Which nobody but the rich can afford. And so it becomes another way of saying, let, 
let the economic corruption have its day. So in, in, any, in any of these cases, the vision of this black horse signifies a disastrous economic situation, whether it's limited or not. Uh, and then finally, John sees a pale horse uh, this pale, or you could translate it greenish-gray. It's, it's the color of a corpse. you ever looked at a corpse? And, and, uh, um, and that's fitting because this writer's name is Death, and Hades followed him. Hades is the place of the dead, the, the, the grave. And as it is elsewhere in the prophets, what we're seeing here is Death and Hades are kind of being personified. You get this language in Hosea where where the Lord, as a curse against Israel, is calling out for death and Hades to come and, and, and devour them. Um, but again, they're being personified here. John says that they were given authority over a fourth of the earth, so the damage they can do is limited. Uh, still, they're enabled to kill with the sword, with famine, with, with pestilence, and by wild beasts of the earth. Now, in one sense, this fourth rider kind of encapsulates the other three. Uh, he brings the sword, like the second horse. He brings famine, like the third horse. Uh, in another sense, he worsens the judgments by adding uh, pestilence and wild beasts. You can think of deadly illnesses sweeping across the land, like when, uh, when the Lord sent a pestilence on Israel and 70,000 people uh, dropped dead. Um, wild beasts might sound a little stranger to us, uh, but a couple of things come to mind. One is you should see here kind of an undoing of the created order. What did God create us? To, he, he created us with dominion over the beasts. But here the beasts are just giving free reign to, to, uh, to devour man. Uh, the other is that uh, the curse of death in the Old Testament, especially in the prophets, was sometimes depicted as beasts coming in after a, battle, a battlefield is filled with, filled with corpses and the beasts are coming to devour the, the remaining bodies. So uh, Ezekiel f- uh, 5 and 14, uh, these kinds of judgments are listed, uh, for, to, and they're listed as, as those that were going to fall on Israel because of their unfaithfulness and idolatry. Uh, and often what happens in the book of Revelation is John takes those kinds of judgments that were meant for Israel and he universalizes them. That's a fancy word for saying he applies them to the whole earth, to, the, to everyone. Uh, and that's what we're seeing here in John's vision. These judgments are falling on the world for its unfaithfulness and idolatry. So to summarize then, the, these four horsemen represent God's agents of judgment. Conquest, Bloodshed, famine, and death are themselves the very judgments of God. They happen when God delivers a society over to its own devices. God does it to shatter pride when nations boast of being number one. God does it to expose the folly of finding security in the present world as we know it. God does it to reveal that man is truly powerless when death and Hades come to town. Third question. When do these things happen? When do these things happen? 
Some would like to limit these events to the fall of Jerusalem in AD 70. However, these judgments don't seem limited to Jerusalem. They affect the earth in verse 4. And God sets a limit of a fourth of the earth in verse 8. They seem worldwide in scope. Also, there's good reason to believe that Revelation was written after the fall of Jerusalem, around AD 90. Others um, would like to limit these judgments to the very end of history to uh, a seven-year tribulation at the very end. Um, However, there are several clues that lead me to say that's too restrictive with respect to timing. All right, let's, let's look at a few of these clues. We know that the seal judgments must occur after Jesus' resurrection. All right, that's clear. As we saw in chapter 5, the lamb was slain. Now he's standing. And God exalted Jesus to his right hand. And only then we start breaking the seals. So that's one clue. Uh, we'll also see that the seventh seal, the seventh trumpet, and the seventh bowl all bring God's judgments to a close at Jesus' return. So that places these first four seals prior to Jesus' return. So after Jesus' resurrection, prior to Jesus' return. Now, both of the views that I stated earlier could affirm that. Uh, And so in that, I think Christians can find unity, right? Right? I just think they go wrong in limiting the judgments to a place like Jerusalem or to a time like the very end. All right, Jesus' words in Matthew 24 offer us another clue. In fact, we can observe numerous parallels. Uh, You can see some of them on the screen. Numerous parallels between Revelation 6 and Matthew 24 or uh, Mark 13 and so on. It's It's an Olivet Discourse. Uh, But in verse 6, Jesus says, uh, this is Matthew 24, verse 6, Jesus says, you will hear of wars and rumors of wars. So think red horse in Revelation 6. See that you are not alarmed, for this must take place, but the end is not yet. The end is not yet. Meaning, these aren't the signs that immediately precede Jesus' return. Then he goes on. For nation will rise against nation. So think white horse in Revelation 6. And kingdom against kingdom. And there will be famines. Think the black horse. And earthquakes in various places. All these are but the beginning of the birth pains. So when I read Jesus' words in Matthew 24, and I look elsewhere in the New Testament Uh, at what characterizes the days between Jesus' resurrection and his return, I can't help but conclude that these judgments transpire throughout the whole of that present age. Okay, They're, they're not the end, but they are the birth pains leading up to the end. when Jesus returns to close the present age as we know it. So so here's how I view, here's a little sketch for you, here's how I view the seven seals with respect to history. All right, John is painting a picture of the last days for us, which we live in right now. 
And so uh, this is what I was saying a while ago at, at the very beginning of how to summarize what these seals are teaching us. Um, amid a world facing God's judgments, that's seals one through four, uh, Christians lay down their lives to spread the gospel, that's seal five, until Jesus returns. All right, so seal six, we'll get to in a couple, uh, a couple more sermons later um, where we see that looks like more like the events that are right before the, the coming of Jesus. Um, anyway, this is how I take these seals. I can hold this with humility. Uh, if you disagree, uh, we can, we can uh, see where we find unity on that. But that's how I'm putting the Bible together. You can test it uh, on when, when these things pan out. Uh, I'm going to develop this more and more as we get to the trumpets and the bowls to see how, you, how these, all these things relate to one another. All right, final question. How should these first four seals impact us? How should these first four seals impact us? Well, first, I think they help you fight sin by exposing the destructive nature of sin. They help you fight sin by exposing the destructive nature of sin. Again, notice from verse 4 that God only has to remove peace and the result is people slaying one another. This is a picture of what sin does to humanity. This is a picture of how the depravity of man plays out in real life. When God hands us over to our own devices. When he lets the corruption just run its course on earth. How many wars have bloodied the earth? How many regimes have slaughtered millions? How many conquests have happened to, to seize land and riches and power only, only to leave thousands dead and dying? And yet we still have teachers and books and movies telling people to look within for answers. Telling people they're good deep down inside. This is what happens to a society who looks within for answers. So here's what we do with that. Every news feed that you read, like last week's BBC headlines, troops told to fire without warning in Kazakhstan. Cannibal jailed for murdering engineer in Berlin. The baby whose hungry mother can't feed him, Ethiopia. Two journalists killed in Haiti, gang attack. When you read stories like this, one thing we must see in them is the destructive nature of our sin. Every story like this should remind you of why you must always be killing sin, or it will be killing you, as John Owen once put it. Sin will destroy you and your marriage and your family and this church and all of society. Here's the other thing we do with that. When we recognize 
the sinfulness of sin and how evil and truly destructive it is, we must cry out to Jesus for mercy. Our only hope for peace and salvation and unity and healing is the Lamb. It's through His cross and resurrection Jesus alone delivers from sin and its destructive power. It's through His cross that the Lamb delivers people from slavery to sin and and look at it just a few verses earlier, makes them into a kingdom and priests to our God who reign upon the earth. The one who is sovereign over these judgments was slain to remove your judgment. So come and acknowledge Him as Lord. Come and find true peace in His kingdom. Second, these first four horses compel us to preach the gospel as God warns the world. Preach the gospel as God warns the world. There is a final judgment coming at the end of history. Uh, When we get to verses 12 to 17, we will learn what that day is like. But until that day comes, the Lord sends these smaller judgments on mankind as warnings of that great day. These four agents bring judgments that are precursors to the one great day at the end. These smaller judgments come to expose the boastful pride of of man for the terrorist that he truly is. They come to expose the depravity of mankind. They come to expose how earthly kingdoms are not invincible. To expose that rulers and governments and human economic systems don't have all the answers. These smaller judgments leave humanity undone and desperately searching for answers. But while He sends these smaller judgments on mankind, He also sends His messengers with good news that saves. We're going to get to this more next time in verses 9 to 11, but those messengers are you and me. The reason God delays the great day of judgment The reason God sends these smaller judgments to to warn of the greater one to come is that God wants others saved and coming to a knowledge of the truth. And you have that message that will save them. It is that message that saved you. We follow Jesus in this. Consider consider, uh, one example from Luke chapter 13, verses 1 to 5. It says that there were some present at that very time who told Jesus about the Galileans whose blood Pilate had mingled with their sacrifices. And he answered them, Do you think that these Galileans were worse sinners than all the other Galileans because they suffered in this way? No, I tell you, but unless you repent, you will all likewise perish. Or those 18 on whom the tower in Siloam fell and killed them, do you think that they are worse offenders than all the others who lived in Jerusalem? No, I tell you, 
but unless you repent, you will all likewise perish. At least one purpose for awful calamities like these is repentance. The point isn't to call every tragedy a direct result of God's judgment. Even worse is for the person not suffering to look at those who are suffering and say, well, if they weren't in sin, this wouldn't have happened. No. Jesus' point is that tragedies like these should cause everyone to consider their eternal state. No one is better. We all need Jesus or we perish. When these judgments fall, we tell the world that these circumstances do not come to them as an accident. They come to them as the one from the one who holds history in his hands. Jesus is sovereign. They teach us about how sin has broken the world. They teach us that this world and its leaders and systems can't save you. They anticipate a greater judgment to come. But hey, we know of this man who went in and through death and came out the other side alive. And he now has the keys to death and Hades. He has authority over the grave. And he can save you. That's what we tell the world. As these judgments, as these warnings come... Third, be careful not to set your hopes in earthly powers, systems, or circumstances. Be careful not to set your hopes in earthly powers, systems, or circumstances. These four seal judgments confront any thought that we can find true and lasting peace in earthly powers, systems, or circumstances. At the time John is writing, Rome is the superpower. Rome has conquered. Rome had had brought decades of relative peace. Being a citizen of Rome had had great benefits. Uh, You know, in Acts, we even see Paul using some of those rights as a a Roman citizen. uh, Insofar as they served the gospel's advance. At the same time it was possible to put put too much confidence in Rome. Over time, it became easy to to get too comfortable with Rome's protection. It became easy to find your security in Rome's prosperity. Even for Christians, it became a temptation to put more trust in Rome than in Christ. That's why Jesus had to confront Christians in Sardis and Laodicea. They were leaning on the securities and luxuries of Rome and to the point that they didn't feel like they needed Jesus anymore. And the same temptations exist for us today, especially for Christians who live in more developed regions. We can get to a place where it's kind of nice here. I feel safe here. For the most part, people leave us alone. We go to work. We pay the bills. We eat and sleep without worry. We settle into these nice, normal circumstances afforded by the values and commitments of our society. We set our goals. We do our plans. We feel confident that we are pretty much in control here. 
Every day is going to look the, look the same. We can even get to a place where we function like we're kind of invincible. But the Lord commissions these writers to make people feel that we're not as invincible as we think. God's agents of judgment can overturn things in a day. With one pestilence and a freeze, he can shut down a nation and rattle its economy. With one ruler hungry for power, he can overturn another nation and leave its people reeling in poverty. Within one day, an entire city can go up in flames as he removes peace and gives people over to their passions. You know the stories. You've read about them in history. You read about them in the newspaper. These judgments ought to be constant reminders not to set your hopes here not to walk so confidently in our systems. Again, uh, Craig Coaster put it this way uh, in his commentary on Revelation, the present order is not inviolable and those, who and those who compromise their faith to accommodate it are trying to placate powers that are not supreme. Our economic systems, granted there are some economic systems that are better than others, but even then they are still limited in a broken world and they are run by fallen people. They are no guarantee for this society to prosper. Conquest, war, famine, and death all remind us that this isn't our ultimate home and we aren't invincible. Only Jesus' kingdom lasts forever. Only Jesus is invincible. And so set your trust in Him and in His ways. And then finally, trust in the Lamb's sovereignty through hard times. Trust in the Lamb's sovereignty through hard times. A passage like this one doesn't answer all of our questions about why evil persists or why awful calamities happen when and to whom they happen to. But it does at least answer who's in control. Whether it be power-hungry leaders, international conflict, economic disaster, or even death itself, Jesus the Lamb controls everything. I got a message from one of our missionaries this week. And one country, one superpower is sending his troops right on the border of where they're, of, of their country. And there might be an invasion soon. I'm sure you're reading about this. You know, how are they supposed to view that situation? 
power-hungry leaders, international conflict, one thing they can remember, and one thing that we can remember, is that Jesus the Lamb is in control. When these things transpire, from our earthly perspective, it can feel like the evil rulers and warlords and famine and death is in control. At times, that's also what contributes to people's anxiety and depression and and despair. What hope do we have if so-and-so invades our country? What hope do our children have if the schools keep settling for these false ideas? What hope do we have if the bottom falls out economically? From earth, that's what it can feel like. And that's why we need the message of Revelation. Revelation lets us see the world from heaven. And from the heavenly perspective, Jesus reigns. Jesus reigns over these things. Jesus is in control. Nothing we experience surprises him or or rattles him. Jesus never gets anxious about the the way things are going to turn out down here. That's why we can cast all of our anxieties on Him. Because He is almighty. And He is able to carry them all. He is sovereign. He can handle our problems. He governs the world and all that's happening in it. He holds history in His hands. More than that, though... We know that Jesus is also good and loving in his sovereign control. Mere sovereignty could be bad. But we know from the cross that Jesus is unquestionably good and loving and wise. When Jesus exercises his sovereign control, he does so as the Lamb who was slain for us. Hard times are in His hands. The hands of the Lamb who died to save a broken world and replace all evil with His kingdom of peace. And that's what we're going to remember now when we come to the Lord's Supper. Let's uh, pray together. Father in heaven, I thank you that Jesus is in control and that we do not have to worry or borrow trouble from tomorrow. Father, I ask that we would rest in his sovereign hands, the same hands that hold all of history. We ask that you would make us faithful stewards of the lives you've given to us. And in the midst of various types of judgments falling on humanity, that we would be faithful to bring the message that saves. Lord, sustain those who are weak and weary. Give strength again to those who are anxious or depressed. Open their eyes to your good and loving kingship. And bring your kingdom soon. Amen.